Jim, finally got you on, man. How's it going? Awesome. I'm doing great. Very excited to finally be included on my own podcast. (laughs) Yeah, for those who don't know, Jim Jessup here is co-founder and COO of QuickPass Cybersecurity, where I work and am an employee of. So super, super excited to have him on. But Jim, you uh, have had another life before your QuickPass days, isn't isn't that right? What was the name of your MSP? I've had a few different lives. My previous MSP was Affinity Managed Services up in Vancouver, BC. We were in business from about... Uh, so we're going to hear... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, we're going to hear the whole story today. We're going to hear before Affinity, what, what it was like, moving to QuickPass, are you... I don't know. A lot of people haven't maybe necessarily thought or answered a lot of questions on on going way back. So are you ready to get into things? Yeah, I just got to make sure I take my memory pills. <laughs> oh my God. You're going to you're going to hear a lot of like the really dry dad jokes between me and Jim. You get the two of us together and it's unbearable for some people. But given our audience, I think that our listeners will enjoy it. So, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of uh, deadpan comedy here. <laughs> Oh my God. All right, Jim. Well, take me back, man. Like before Affinity, what were you doing? Did you just start, you know, an MSP from the beginning? Were you working in IT before? What was life like back then? Well, way back when in the the olden times in the 1990s, I went to school for computer science and then realized that there was a big opportunity in the IT industry, specifically with taking, you know, Microsoft certifications. That was when around the time when Microsoft came out with uh, Windows 95, if anybody remembers that year, if you were born at that point, and and all that great dancing that Bill Gates had on the stage when they were announcing doing the product launch with Start Me Up from the Rolling Stones. So that was kind of when I was in university and decided that, you know, I didn't necessarily want to be a software developer. I wanted to go into IT. So kind of did all the you know, the MCSE certifications, all that kind of stuff, and uh, started my career initially as an IT manager in the the year of 1999 at the ripe age of 22 years old, fresh out of university, uh, working for a manufacturing company that was in uh, research and development in the rail industry of all places. So the company was um, a startup, probably around 20 people or so, and the one real kind of uh, point that I really learned a lot from that was the fact that, you know, it was a startup that went through, you know, a bunch of different troubling times, you know, almost ran out of money. We had to learn about how to work off a shoestring budget, um, you know, have on the IT side, basically learning how to run everything all on my own, fresh out of school, you know, sort of going crazy 24 hours a day, having people all around the world calling me at 2 a.m. in the morning because we had salespeople on the road in Europe and in Asia and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really sleep very well and never really took a lot of vacations, but it was a great experience for me to get started in the industry. Going right from there into MSP, into SaaS COO, I don't know that you've had a lot of sleep in your entire lifetime. Yeah, I definitely would say that I've had very few holidays where I could actually completely shut down over the last maybe 24 years or so. As most people know, working in IT, as well as in an MSP, the the only real time that you might be able to get off is when everybody else is on vacation too, which might be the Christmas holidays or Thanksgiving or something like that, right? 
but the interesting kind of story about the startup that I was working at, which kind of rolled up to today, is everything's connected. So effectively, we had a, an IT support company that was across the street from us where somebody who I went to high school with was running. And uh, they actually provided some support whenever I did happen to go away. And eventually, once uh, the company I was working with got bought out, they were like, hey, you want to come work for us? And I was like, okay, sounds like a great idea. So that was kind of my first, this was way back in 2007. I'm really dating myself here still. And, but really they were still at that time, you know, they were, you know, a value-added reseller. They were doing IT support. They had a, a homegrown PSA. They had just initially bought Kaseya VSA way back in the day and were just looking at deploying it. And one of the things that really excited me was that was kind of the infancy of the MSP industry where we were actually discussing and going, hey, we could actually sell our services as a product. We can go, we can deploy Kaseya VSA as the RMM. They already had a, you know, a crude PSA and all the structure was there. But hey, instead of just billing purely by the hour, let's package this up and see if we can sell it as a product. So that's kind of what I really found exciting about that. I started as a senior consultant and ended up being the professional services manager and kind of, you know, managing a team under me. But that was really kind of my first little taste in the MSP industry was kind of moving, you know, away from a break fix business to, you know, a product based service business. And I thought it was like super exciting. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Fast forward a few years, that company got bought out by a larger telecommunications company, kind of like a, you know, a Verizon sort of type company for people in the U.S. Um, in Canada was another one. So we moved all over to that. That was great. But one of the things that, you know, a lot of the guys that were working in the company, we weren't really pleased with the management there, how they were, you know, they didn't really see the value in professional services and the MSP, and they were more focused on being an internet provider, providing connectivity solutions and things like that. And a couple of us kind of got together and thought, hey, we could probably do a better job of this. We thought we had all the relationships with our customers and we thought, you know, hey, we could probably give this a go if we really wanted to and, and go out on our own. So that was kind of the how Affinity Managed Services got started uh, way back in about 2011. And so there's a couple of you then that moved over together, or was it all people sort of from the same company you were working at, or were there outside people? Great question. Yeah, so it was mainly um, two of them were working for me. One of them had initially actually gone out on his own, and and I use the, the I'm sure most people have heard this term, the trunk slammer. That's effectively what he ended up turning into was a one-man show going out on his own, but all of his customers followed him. And I thought, okay, well, there's something to this. Ended up, he partly convinced me to kind of join up with him to join him up and kind of really build a you know legitimate company as opposed to just kind of running around like a one-man show, et cetera. So that was the first step when I went over and then some of my customers ended up following me as well. And so really never actually even missed a paycheck. I mean, we were paying ourselves a little bit less, but, you know, we're really fortunate to never actually have to go months or, or years without having a paycheck. 
And then one of her other top guys ended up following us about a year later. And that was kind of that initial group that uh, we had in the company. And we kind of built up from there. That's one of the great things about IT services or MSP. If you, like many people have said this, actually, they've come out profitable or break even really enough to pay themselves from the start, which is is sort of pretty uncommon for a lot of uh, businesses, especially out of like professional services or services in general. Did you have a bigger plan though? Or was it just kind of like, okay, here's, you know, four customers, maybe we could get a three of them, you know, on managed services contracts or get enough work that paycheck will be about the same or like, was it like, okay, we want to get 20 by next year or something like that. Like where was your head at at that time? The main objective was was definitely adding as many customers as we could. Um, from my perspective, you know, because I had already kind of gotten the the taste of the MSP life and selling things as a service more productized, that's what was was my objective and, and was the objective for the company was to get, you know, some well, most of these customers that might have been on a break fix contract or that we were charging per hour on MSAs, getting them to start to pay us a, a monthly fee and, and maximize that MRR. We ended up, you know, initially hiring a biz dev person that also worked at sales and he helped us, you know, grow the business to a certain degree. And, and we were able to get up to, let's say about 80 customers or so within the first um, few years, which, you know, we were really fortunate that we're able to do that. And I think one of the things that you know, outside of the existing relationships that we had and customers following us over to the um, the new company is really to highlight that the MSP business is a relationship business, right? You know, having that relationship and owning that relationship with your customers is the most important thing. I mean, it's not just delivering the technical service or being that trusted advisor, but it's really owning that relationship. And you definitely, especially as an owner, don't want to delegate that to somebody else because, you know, part of the reasons why we were able to initially kind of get our foot in the door was because we had that relationship. And we, even though we weren't the owners of the company, we own that, uh, that relationship. And that's where the value is in the MSP industry. And so I definitely want to make, you know, highlight that point. That was really the strength that we had to help us kind of get started and to grow. People buy from people. Hear that phrase all the time. Hundred percent. You mentioned that you uh, had heard the term MSP, and you were getting exposed to the Kaseya, you know, rhetoric at the time. You know, it was just sort of being coined MSP. What was the industry like back then? And like, did you attend the events, or was there like, how did you find out about MSP and what's going on? And like, it obviously wasn't as mature as it is now back then, but you know, it was definitely budding and had some momentum. There was definitely, you know, less events back then. As far as I remember, ConnectWise, as well as Kaseya, were probably the earlier ones to start doing events, but they were definitely few and far between, whereas now you can go to three events a week if you wanted to, whereas back then there might have been like one, two or three events uh, in general. Most of the stuff came from, you know, the VAR environment, which is like the value-added resellers, because that's effectively what people who might call themselves an MSP today used to be. They were a value-added reseller. They might have been a computer repair shop that provided, you know, professional services and things like that. They sold Microsoft licenses. And as most people know that have ever resold Microsoft licenses, you have to have a PhD 
in Microsoft licensing to be able to know what the hell you're selling with all the different licensing types, et cetera. There actually used to be, and, and probably still is, a physical book that they would send you that was like this thick of all the different licensing things, whether it was like, you know, retail, volume licensing, OEM. And it was just ridiculous. You'd spend probably like if you had a, a new customer that signed up and they needed, you know, exchange licenses, Windows Server, et cetera, you'd be spending like an hour figuring out, you know, how many, what types of client access licenses they need, how many server licenses, all that kind of stuff. But kind of getting back to your point, a lot of the the stuff and, and the news and, and things mostly revolved around the bar market. And that kind of evolved into, you know, MSP centric, like, hey, we're all VARs, but let's, you know, there's this new way of, you know, selling your services that can be not only more profitable, but a better way to deliver it and more predictable, right? And that was the thing that most people like about recurring revenue is it's predictable when you're a project-based business and you're just billing by the hour. I mean, yeah, you know, certain customers might have the same support on average every month and you can kind of count on that, but it's really hard to budget and forecast and ensure that you have the appropriate staff to be able to serve your customers. It's just all over the place. So it really took that predictability or it added the predictability to the business. And that was really the greatest part about it. So now you work for cybersecurity, you know, you own and started a cybersecurity company for MSPs. Cybersecurity back then was a lot, you know, less than it is now. I mean, now it's like all MSPs are talking about. But like, just paint a picture for me at that time, you know, or maybe through the the evolution of your business. How did security change? I know that that time period, like later 2015 through 2018, really is like coined as the ransomware epidemic. So what was uh, stuff like back then? I know there was like an evolution of backup, you know, backup happening. Just like, you know, educate me, Jim. What was life like back then from security? Well, it was pretty scary. I'll tell you that much. I remember the days when documentation was notepad. You could go back and say it was a physical notepad, posted notes, then going to notepad and windows, right? Or the equivalent on a Mac where people were putting all their privileged account passwords, all their service account passwords, whatever documentation they had within a plain text notebook, notepad file within a folder with that was shared with everybody in the company, right? So, you know, maybe in an internal company, you wouldn't necessarily be sharing that with everybody in the company. But I mean, you know, we're talking like, you know, five character passwords, people keeping the same passwords. I mean, maybe you might be resetting it, you know, once every six months or something like that. It was, I mean, you'd be a sitting duck today with any of the types of security controls and things like that back then. In terms of backups, I mean, I come from the day where we were literally doing tape backups, like, you know, these were cartridges and tape backup machines. And you'd kind of pray whether or not they'd actually run one night or not. Like the, the, the failure rate was amazingly high. And we were using products like uh, Seagate Backup Exec, which was kind of the big backup program way back in the day, then was purchased by Symantec, et cetera. I actually had a pretty, at the time, what I thought was a kind of creative way of doing backups on all the systems that we had was, um, you know, now there's Acronis who owns, you know, what was before called True Image, 
and way back when it was it was actually owned by Seagate as well. So I would actually do disk images of every workstation in the startup I was working at and the servers, and I would run it every night to an actual hard drive, right? And so if anybody had a problem with their machine, and these were machines running, you know, Windows 98, maybe, you know, Windows 2000 if you were lucky, and these machines would be going down left, right, and center all the time. So rather than me spending two hours or three hours setting up a new machine every time something crashed, I could just restore that image to the same make and model of another machine and they'd be back up and running and have all their applications and configurations. And this is like back in the year 2000. So, but that was something that people were rarely doing. Um, there were also things like uh, folder redirection, which is, you know, redirecting like the My Documents folder in the desktop to a file server to make sure that, hey, if that person loses their laptop, they can actually get their files back. And really now, only in the last so many years, Microsoft finally got smart and said, hey, maybe with OneDrive, we should have like a built-in option to back up the desktop, the documents, and, you know, a lot of those common local folders. And now even Mac's doing it. I'm like, and literally I was sitting there going for 10 or 15 years going, why isn't this like the default? Everybody's got laptops. They've got, you know, their critical company data stored on local folders. You know, this is before SSD drives, you know, spinning hard drives would fail all the time or they get their laptop stolen. They're done. Their data's done. And you get some pretty unhappy customers if, uh, you know, they lost all their documents in their, in their My Documents folder, right? So funny, like... Uh... I remember you shared the other day or someone shared about like the trick where you can take a Windows Live CD and uh, replace the command prompt file with like sticky keys or something and then like get an elevated command and reset the admin password or something. And then everybody was talking sort of about how, you know, you can plug in uh, a Linux Live CD or whatever. And back then you could just view the files on the, on the computers like. Yeah, I mean, everything was plain text, right? There was no concept of, you know, encryption. I mean, maybe for banks, I mean, even banking passwords, in a lot of cases until just recently, didn't even have MFA requirements, which is a whole other story, but for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, so your business obviously had a lot of success early on, you know, to get to 80 customers that quickly you had eventually sold the business. So what was it like in the years leading up to that? Did you always know you were going to sell the business? Was it something that just came along and happened? Um, was everyone aligned that that's what you were going to do? Like, I know you had some partners there. How did that happen? Like, what's the story there? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And it kind of evolved into a, a couple of phases. Like initially, as I mentioned, there was one initial partner that came over from the previous company that we're working at. And most of his customers were break fix. And, you know, my goal was, and the company's goal was to kind of convert those to, you know, MSAs and get them on contract. But what we found after maybe three or four years was that there wasn't really much alignment with him in terms of sort of realizing that vision. And that he would just kind of continue to be like, oh, well, I'll just you know, do break fix. They're, they still pay me and, and didn't really see the alignment in terms of, you know, wanting to be a full-fledged MSP and get everybody on MSAs. So 
we had to make a kind of a tough decision at that time. This is probably back in uh, 2014, 2015 to kind of split the business. Um, you know, great person, great guy, but just didn't want to put in the effort to, you know, get everybody on an, an MSA contract. So we ended up splitting the company. You know, we ended up keeping the name and, and all the customers that were effectively you know, running under the MSP on contracts. And then he took all his break fix customers and, you know, is continuing to this day. And so that was kind of an important first step because especially from an acquisition standpoint, any company looking to acquire an MSP, they're primarily looking at, you know, what is your MRR? Are all your customers on MSA contracts? You know, they're fine with obviously having project revenue and reselling revenue, whether it be for licenses and computers, servers, et cetera. But it's really that MRR and the MSAs that's the most important. So I kind of saw that as a bit of a problem. And unfortunately, we made the tough decision to do that, but it ended up turning out for the best because then, you know, he went on and did what he enjoyed doing. And and we kind of took the company and kind of grew it from there and just made sure that as many customers as possible were all on MSAs and everybody was aligned with that. So that kind of set us up for when we did ultimately end up selling. I didn't initially want to necessarily sell at the time that we did, which was around 2019, but an opportunity that came around to start Quick Pass from our current CEO, who is somebody else that I've known for probably around 30 years. And you know, he, he went to the software development side of things uh, he kept bugging me over and over again. Hey, we got to build a product. We got to build a product. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm busy. I got things to do. I got a family. I, I don't have time for this. Um, but eventually, an opportunity came about where he came to me with a potential solution to a problem that I had been dealing with with most of my customers, which had to do with you know the sell surpass reset side of things as well as the password rotation side of things. I was like, hey, you got something here. So really that was sort of the motivating factor to that ultimately led to the sale of Affinity to a larger MSP where we were kind of pursuing that. Otherwise, we probably would have still been running it today had we not had that other opportunity not been there. But once I knew that that was what we were going to do and realized that I, I probably couldn't do both, that's when the kind of wheels started to go in motions and started to kind of look around and see, you know, what opportunities would be out there to have somebody acquire us. A lot of people listening might be in a similar situation. How long did that process, or as you would say, how long would that process take uh, to go through the uh, the actual buying uh, cycle and, you know, meet with potential suitors and all that? It can definitely vary a great degree depending on where you're at in your MSP. Are you a small MSP, a midsize, a large, right? Because um, obviously the larger you are, the more due diligence there is, the more lawyers are involved and all that kind of stuff. And also the different structures of the deal. So for in our case, I was kind of fortunate that I had somebody who I knew that was kind of going to the same health club that I was that was the CEO of another larger MSP in the area, uh, fully managed, who is now owned by um, TELUS, which is another big telecommunications company. They were in the Vancouver area, and he was kind of just going around, you know, contacting any MSP that was local looking to do acquisitions, as, you know, ends up likely happening in a lot of other, you know, regions around North America. And we just got to talking and 
you know, hey, would you be interested in selling? And initially I wasn't at the time. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, great. But not really interested. And then, you know, as a few months went by, when I realized that, okay, we're, I'm going to have to kind of get out of this to start quick pass, we've got something here. I reached back out to him and, uh, you know, said, hey, let's let's have a chat and figure out if we can work out a deal. The process, in my case, took a few months because there are certain logistical things you got to deal with, right? Such as, um, you know, with the staff that you have working at the company, you got to make sure that, hey, that they're going to come over, that they're willing to sign employment contracts with the new company. I had to go to all my customers and make sure that they were on board with doing it because obviously if uh, that MSP acquires your MSP and none of your customers want to sign an MSA with the new company, or you either don't have one that carries over legally, that could put you in a pretty compromising position. And now what you might've had before as in a great business with good revenue might be largely at jeopardy if people aren't on board with doing it. So there was not just, you know, selling to me, making sure this was a deal that the acquiring MSP was interested in, but also our customers and our staff. And that's really kind of where the, the logistical parts of it come in that can make it tough. Whereas just deciding you want to sell your MSP and somebody wanting to buy it is, is the easy part. It's all the other, you know, the devils are in the details part of it. And, uh, you know, talk to me more about the early days of Quick Pass and, and switching things over. I mean, it was like, like, it's a big switch, you know, going from very stable income to, you know, starting something out of nothing. The last time you did it, you were, you know, in your, in your 20s and, you know, had profit right away. Like, that's not necessarily the case with a SaaS company in most situations. So where was your head at? Was your... Was your family, was your significant other on board? Like, <laughs> was it scary? Was it easy? Well, it was uh, definitely very scary in a sense. Different from when I started the MSP where, as I mentioned before, I didn't have to miss a paycheck. You know, it was not necessarily the highest salary, but I still got paid, which was great and made it, you know, super convenient. But in this case, that was not the case. So, but a little bit different in the scenario that, you know, I obviously sold the other MSP. So I had some funds from that, which I thought, okay, this is all I need. But ultimately what ended up happening is I put all that money in the quick pass, which I wouldn't necessarily say my wife was completely on board with. And I definitely, we started right from zero. So I, I definitely was not collecting a paycheck for quite some time ended up being about 18 months before I initially got paid from about, let's say, September 2019 until January 2021 or something like that. So there was a period, you know, a long period where, you know, you have a lot of doubts, you know, you're working really hard, you're not getting paid, you're wearing a lot of hats, right? I mean, I was doing, you know, the development side, at least from our CEO, he had his development shop, which was doing all the dev work, which was great. And that you know, really helped us get us to where we are today. But I was doing, you know, support, customer success. I was helping out with sales, product development, accounting, HR, QA, you name it. You know, when somebody emailed in, they're like, oh, I actually got a ticket response from the owner, you know, which seems kind of odd, right? But in one sense, it helped me understand everything about the business, which is great. But I mean, it was very... It was definitely a trying time. I can look back at it now and say it was definitely worth it. But at the time, 
you know, we were going through COVID, there was no events, we weren't able to go to any of the shows. And so, you know, we really had to rely on really good product market fit, which I think we're hugely fortunate to have, which a lot of startups don't necessarily have. They might be creating a whole new market that they have to educate their potential customer base on. And uh, we were fortunate that that wasn't as difficult as it might have otherwise been. And we were able to at least kind of get out of COVID, you know, without going out of business. And we were able to get to, you know, a million dollars in revenue without even barely going to any events. So it's an attestment to a lot of the people that were definitely with the company early on, the product market fit, and, you know, really having to dig deep and work really hard, but it, it definitely did pay off. So. Yeah, I mean, here we are now. It's, uh, it's, it's. I love that story. I love hearing it. I didn't know all those details, Jim. One thing I always like to ask people on these episodes, as you know, is advice for someone in your shoes, so or shoes that you've been in before. I think for you, I'd like to go two scenarios. One, when you you know are sort of finding the business model, and I know you parted ways with one of your partners uh, who sort of wanted to stick more to the break fix or consulting approach and and not the master services agreement and recurring revenue approach. And then also anyone who is an MSP right now who thinks they might want to start a SaaS company or move over to the the dark side, right? The vendor side of things. So you can answer either first, but I'll hand both of those over to you at the same time. I would definitely say that the biggest learning that I had is you know, having to break up with that first partner due to sort of a misalignment in, you know, what our goals were and, you know, is something very important, you know, be very careful of which partners you do decide to choose. It is definitely important to have a partner, at least one partner when you're starting a startup from scratch, because it's very difficult to do everything on your own. And you might not necessarily be an expert in everything on a business, right? You know, there's all sorts of things that you need to know running a business that go outside of just the technical knowledge of delivering the services to your customers, right? But making sure that you're aligned on, hey, you're going to run an MSP. What does that mean? That means getting MSAs. That means getting the recurring revenue and all the things that go around that. And so that's super important. So you don't have to go through the headaches of having to, you know, start again partially and and kind of get going again, right? You can You can definitely ensure that you're you know, you're able to continue that momentum moving forward. The other part I would say, which I didn't at the time take my advice as much, which is focus on sales and marketing. Like, do not underestimate the power of really good sales and marketing. And I know that it's very difficult when you're a startup and you're not making a lot of money to, you know, spend money on marketing when you're not sure if you're going to get the ROI or taking that leap of faith and hiring salespeople, like typically founders, you're going to do sales initially anyways. But once you get up to a certain point, being able to hire in, you know, that first salesperson and also commit that money on marketing. And I've realized now more on the SaaS side of how important and critical that is. And if you don't take that, I mean, I say a bit of a leap of faith, but it's almost kind of like an, a, a calculated risk that you're really limiting your growth, right? And, you know, sales and marketing, like you could be the best technical person in the world, the smartest person, have the best process, et cetera. But if nobody knows about you and you're, if you're not getting the, the word out and you don't have a good sales process, 
you're not really going to go very, very far, right? And you're really limiting your opportunities to be able to sell your MSP or really have a, a great MSP yourself and to be able to, you know, eventually take a step back maybe and, and take a vacation, right? You'll just perpetually be in the cycle of doing everything yourself because you don't want to take the risk of spending the money on marketing or sales or getting the help that you need. So I, I would say from the MSP side, that is the advice that I would give to myself way back when. And then on the, the SaaS side, yeah, the other side, um, if you're an MSP right now, and, you know, which has happened quite a bit, right? There's been a, you know, a lot of MSP vendors have started because they were in the MSP industry. And I th- and the reason for that outside of the obvious is that, you know, they understand the market. The MSP market is, and the landscape is very unique. And there's a lot of enterprise companies that have tried to get into the MSP market space. And, you know, some have had some success and others have, you know, fall flat on their face because they just don't understand the market, right? They have people in product development or in sales or running the company. They just think, hey, whatever they did in the enterprise, oh, the MSP market must need it, right? Which is entirely not the case. So if you are an MSP and looking to kind of get into sort of a SaaS or or any type of MSP product, the biggest advantage you have is that knowledge of the MSP industry. The other is, is that you're able to see the problems, right? And when I previously spoke about product market fit, you know, that out of anything, and you can just listen to any, you know, thought leader in the SaaS space is like the number one most critical thing. If you don't have product market fit, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is, how good your sales is, how good your process is, you'll just fail, right? You'll ultimately fail. So really being an MSP, you have a firsthand knowledge of all those problems that you experience on a day-to-day basis. And you also know, especially if you're, you know, keeping up with, you know, the solutions that are out there, you know, if there's a solution for that problem or if there isn't. And if you're also participating in a lot of the peer groups and so on, you'll know, hey, so-and-so down in Florida or Texas is having the same problem as you and they don't have a solution for it, right? They're doing something manually. They're wasting their time. You know, being an MSP, it's such time focused, you know, time is money. And if you're spending, you know, 10 hours doing something when you could be doing it in an hour, that's hitting your bottom line. Every single second, minute, hour that you or your technician spend on something hits you in the pocketbook directly. So if you find, hey, this problem, that's a big problem and nobody's got a solution, it's like, boom, that's the idea, right? Now, the other part I would sort of say on that is identifying the problem and a potential solution is one thing. But the other phrase I like to say is ideas are cheap. Implementing them is expensive. So understand that it's great having an idea and seeing an opportunity. But the other part of that is, okay, how do I bring this to market? Right? Am I building it myself? Am I hiring somebody else to do it? You know, and just like a lot of projects, you know, I would compare it to like an infrastructure project in civil engineering or for municipality when you're building a bridge, you know, whatever you've budgeted for it, double it (laughs) or maybe triple it. Whatever you think it might cost, it's going to cost way more and it's going to take a lot more effort to actually get to market. 
So, and if you can find a way to fool yourself into thinking that it's less money, but then still find a way to make it work in the end, you have a chance of, of making it, right? I mean, and that's just that initial stage, right? And, and having somebody that you might know that, you know, runs an agency or that a partner that is a software developer is super helpful because if you had to pay or outsource the building of, of a new tool, it's not cheap, right? If you go through an agency or a third party, unless you're getting somebody in the, in the middle of nowhere to do it, which you know has its own potential limitations, it's super expensive. And so, you know, you have to be able to, you know, the reality check is just making sure that you have enough money, right? Maybe you've, you can sell your MSP and get a lot from that is certainly helpful. Maybe you've got some savings, but do some calculated risks, right? If it's a really big problem, and the solution is a great solution that could do really good and there's a product market fit, you've got something there. But don't do, I would say, you know, some people just think, oh, I've got this problem that maybe only I have, and then not realizing that there's another solution or an easier way of doing it. So then they spend a bunch of money on developing a solution that nobody asked for because there's already a solution for it. So it's really understanding your market, what's available is hugely crucial. The executing that is obviously another thing. And and the funding over time, you know, if you really do have something great, there's always places to get money, right? I mean, that's the thing that is also really important that if you've got something that's good, there's no shortage of money in the world to fund great ideas and great projects. But there's definitely a shortage of money when it's not <laughs> a great, you know, if, it, if there is no product market fit. So I would kind of, you know, caveat with that. That's wisdom right there, Jim. I, I eating all those words up, man. That's that's great. I guess, you know, uh, we might have to do a, a second episode just on every, uh, you know, the first couple of years at QuickPass and what what. <laughs> what that was like because I know it started with you and Matteo and then eventually uh Chris Brennan sitting in a room together <laughs> yeah it was uh it was quite funny it was our first salesperson and, and that was you know also where a lot of the learning went in on the sales and marketing side right I mean I can do sales you know a lot of founders can maybe that's not their strong suit I'm more on the technical side so that's you know what comes naturally to me so even though at the time maybe we couldn't afford it, we hired a first salesperson, you know, and it really paid off, right? Having that person focus on that. I just wish I did the same thing in, in my MSP. So that was kind of the, the beginnings of that learning on the sales and marketing side of things. Well, Jim, do you have any closing words or closing thoughts for the audience? Uh, well, I did forget my pipe here because this seems like a very intellectual fireside chat. So Either that or we're going to have to do cigars next time. There you go. Go uh, pick up your quick pass cigars. Exactly, right? Uh, get those at the next event that you're attending. Don't miss out. They're rolled in Orlando, but they're made by a Cuban. So they're legal. That's what I tell everybody. No lies there. Yeah, I would say I, a closing thought on the serious part is if you really feel you're running an MSP, whether small, medium, or large, and you feel that you have more to offer or that, you know, where you're at right now isn't where you'd like it to be, or you think that you could have a, a much bigger company or maybe there's another bigger opportunity, is to not give up on those, on those dreams. Um, look at ways that you can 
change your mindset, right? And for me, the biggest thing was just a mindset shift of what I thought was possible, right? I mean, from the time when I started in IT, you know, 23, 24 years ago, I never thought that it'd be, I'd be where I was today. I mean, you might hope and you have dreams, et cetera, but I just didn't think it was possible. And even when I was working for somebody else, I didn't think starting an MSP was possible. So you kind of go through those different stages in your life, and it's really what you think of yourself and what you can do, which is really the biggest limiting factor, right? Everybody in this world has the same brain. We might look a little bit different, but we all have the capacity to start a company and be successful. And it's really our own minds that are the own limiting factors in that. Wow. There we go. (laughs) Well, Jim, appreciate your time here. Uh, This has been a great episode. I really enjoyed it, getting to know your story a little bit more. I've heard bits and pieces over the years, but to hear it all like this is special. So thank you for your time. Um, And now we can go back to our, our regular lives and start asking each other for things outside of the context of a podcast, right? Awesome. Well, I really appreciate uh, doing the podcast. I had a lot of fun. 